It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. Okay, so this show is about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we do interviews and we talk to people about history, politics, religion. And to help us today, we have one of the attorneys in our office, Mel, Mel Jose. Good afternoon, Sakonis. So, how are you doing today? I'm good. It's it's, it's still you, pretty you friendly. You look a little winter. nervous here. I am. <laughs> First time on the radio. Okay. Right. So, what do you what, what do you do at Connors and Sullivan, Mel? Well, I've, I've been working with Connors and Sullivan for about three years now. Um, I primarily do real estate closings and litigation, but you know the specialty of the firm is um, Medicaid planning, trust and estates, elder law, tax. So, I encounter all these questions in these areas on a daily basis as far as they relate to real estate matters. Now, one so. other thing. Are you admitted in any other foreign country? Yes, I am. I, first of all, I was born and raised in Manila. I practiced law there for about over a little over a decade. So there's that before I flew to New York. So welcome here, right? Thank you. We're glad you came. <laughs> what are the differences between the laws in the Philippines and, and the laws in New York as far as property ownership? Well, first of all, New York follows the title insurance practice here. In the Philippines, we follow the, um, the torrent system of title where the government issues title. You know, here it's the owners who transfer title. You know, now this is going back to my law school days, but there used to be a torrent system in different parts of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. You know, out in Canarsie, where the old Dutch settlements, they, they used to have a torrent system, which means, in other words, you had to have one deed to transfer to another through your chain of title. If you lost your deed, you'd have to get a court order to get another one. There you go. Oh, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, where right now, if you lose your deed, let's say you're in New York, if you lose your deed, it's no big deal. It's on the city system. You can access it on the internet. And people come in to me all the time and they say, hey, you know, I lost my deed. I don't know what to do. Okay. What year did you buy your house? If you bought your house after 1965, you can go on the internet and get a copy of your deed. If you bought your house before 1965, well, then you got to go downtown or depending on where you live, you have to go to the county courthouse and there you can get a uh, a copy of the deed. Mel, what, what some of the questions you get, what are the questions do you think might be important for our audience? Coming from um, a Filipino community, you know, where there's a lot of nurses, you know, a lot of, you know, people who like to invest properties here and there, I think one of the more important questions there for me is, is it wise to maintain two residences in at least two states, you know, when you are retiring? Is that wise to do so, at least for a Filipino? And um, for estate planning purposes, what's the strategic difference between a life estate and a power of appointment? Well, let's let's start the two residences. Now, I mean, technically, you can only have one primary domicile. And a lot depends 
And, and I mean, yes, people can live six months in one state, six months in another. And sometimes you can try to have it both ways because just spending a few more days in one state can can change which state you're, you're domiciliary of. Um, a lot of times it's between New York and Florida. The advantage of Florida, there's no death tax, there's no estate tax in Florida. The advantage in New York, there are a lot of medical programs, home care Medicaid programs where you can hire your own home attendants, including your children. There are a lot more benefits that are available in Florida. So that's one of the choices you have to make. But the, the one good thing about it, if you, if you have a residence in New York, you can change your primary residence in New York very quickly in one month's time. And then you can be eligible for those benefits in, in New York. Also, the other side of the coin is, if you have a residence in New York and you have a taxable estate, which right now is $5,700,000, assuming you're single, there's no tax between husband and wife. Uh, New York State, if you have a residence in New York, they're going to try to argue you are a New York State resident and try to tax your state if you have more than $5.7 million. So it's not always easy. But as far as the benefits are concerned, it's very easy to get your primary residence changed from, New- from Florida to New York. New York to Florida... I'm not an expert on Florida law, but if you spend more than 183 days in Florida, you can be entitled to their homestead exemption and so forth. And and here's one thing. Some people try to play it both ways. They get the STAR program, senior citizens exemption in New York, and they get the the homestead exemption in Florida. They're computers nowadays. People can track it down. People can, can check on it. Don't try to have it both ways. Make your honest decision. I'm a New York resident. I'm a Florida resident. Spend more than half the year in one of those places. And listen, sometimes... We have a married couple. They can live together 364 days a year. The husband can spend 183 days in Florida, be a Florida resident. The wife can spend 183 days a year in New York and be a New York resident. And you can, to some extent, have it both ways. It's something we can talk about if that comes up. Power of appointment. Basically, almost all of our trusts have a combination of power appointment and life estate involved in the trust. That means that the, let's say, most of our trust obviously are between parents and children. That means the parents really have control of the property that's in the trust. One, they have a life estate. They have exclusive right to collect rents, to live there. Uh, They are the owners for their lifetime. Power of appointment means they can change the beneficiaries, either through a will or otherwise, after they're gone. So if a power of appointment usually gives the the parent the right to change the beneficiaries. Even if your assets are in an irrevocable trust, You, with the power of appointment, you can change the beneficiaries. I mean, usually it stays within family members. And, and I would dare say that if we do 100 trusts with children, the number of trusts we change the beneficiaries on, it's not going to be one out of 100. Do things occasionally happen? Yes. You know, sometimes something happens to good. The you know, the child wins the lottery and they don't need any money. I mean, that that's happened to us once. And then so the child who wins the lottery, you take him out of the will and you leave it to the other two kids. There are other things that happen. Maybe that child's inherited from his uncle or aunt and, and so forth and you want to even it up. So have appointment, you can change the beneficiaries, even on an irrevocable trust. And that's why sometimes you need to come in and talk it over. Don't necessarily listen to what your neighbor tells you, what you read in the book, what you read on the internet. And I don't want to knock the people that write on the internet. Which happens a lot of time. Yeah, people read <laughs> stuff on the internet. And the problem was, one, the articles are not necessarily specific to New York law. And number two, you don't know who's writing the article on the internet. It could be a guy or a person, a woman who knows everything about the subject, and it may be an extremely good article. It also may be an article written by somebody who just got out of law school and is reading from other books and really doesn't have command of the situation. I'm not saying don't read the internet, but don't rely on it. If you want to come in, schedule an appointment with us at Connors and Sullivan. If you, you want to do something about your real estate or whatever, you can see Mel or Justin. And if you own real estate in the Philippines, and there are a lot of weird laws 
in the Philippines mm-hmm. about owning real estate. I mean, you can go to jail if you don't own real estate, Brock. <laughs> but you're laughing, but is that true? That's true. That's true. Yeah, if you don't do it right in the Philippines, they can put you in jail. <laughs> and I, I don't think bail is that easy over there, is it? <laughs> well, especially on a Friday. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and this might occur if, if you own property in the Philippines and you have a child who's a U.S. citizen who's not a resident of the Philippines, correct? Yes. Well, first of all, non-Philippine nationals are not allowed to own real property in the Philippines. So you have to, you know, discuss that properly with your attorney. Right. So for the sake of argument, let's say you're a Filipino citizen or you were born there and you have a spouse who's a U.S. citizen. Can you leave your spouse that that asset? Well, that's one of the exceptions. All right. But that's one of the things you got to figure out and and try to learn. And if you want to schedule an appointment with us at Connors & Sullivan, please do so. 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit at their website, connorsandsullivan.com. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. Adult stem cell research is nothing new. It has been going on for decades and, in fact, has proven helpful in treating various diseases. In the process of this research, nobody has to be killed in order to obtain the stem cells. Embryonic stem cell research, on the other hand, only began in 1998 and does involve killing a new human life in order to obtain the cells. The number of diseases that have been successfully treated with embryonic stem cells is zero. They have shown no medical benefit. And even if they did, such activity is immoral. The end does not justify the means. Adult stem cells have treated various forms of leukemia, sickle cell disease, anemia, and carcinoma. Embryonic stem cells have succeeded in nothing. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Many times when we're in the office... 
people have questions about reverse mortgages. So it's a new year now, so we brought our in-house expert, Frank Melia, to answer a few questions about reverse mortgages. Welcome to the show. Nice to see you, Mike. The first question is, what is a reverse mortgage? I, I, I know to somebody like you, that may sound like a stupid question, but there are a lot of people who really don't know what a reverse mortgage is. A reverse mortgage, Mike, is a FHA, Federal Housing Authority, mortgage. Uh, for an owner-occupied premises. So if you do own your house, you could apply or you know look into a reverse mortgage. Um, you can't look at a reverse mortgage if you have an investment property or if you own like a vacation home. It's a refinance or they you, you are allowed to purchase a home with a reverse mortgage. It's an age-weighted program. What I mean by that is um, one of the two owners, at least someone on the property uh, title, has to be at least 62 years of age. You can have a one to four family house or you can have a condominium. Um, at the present time, you cannot get a reverse mortgage if you have a co-op. And what a reverse mortgage simply does is it allows the homeowners to tap into the equity of the house. And what I mean by that is we can give you a line of credit on the property and the amount um, that you have in the line of credit is determined by the age of the borrowers and the property value. And with this new year in 2019, they raised the amount of the maximum home value. Um, so right now in the year 2019, the new limit is 726525 That means that's the maximum value that would be used um, for the home value. And then you would get a percentage of that. So a homeowner usually gets between 40 to 60% of the home value in a line of credit. And they can use that money uh, for home improvements, uh, to pay off other types of debts, or really do anything they need. But the one feature of a reverse mortgage that's different than any other mortgage is that there is no required monthly payment. They will get a statement every month in the mail that shows their balance that they've taken and the interest that does accrue on the balance, um, but they do not have to make a payment if they choose not to, as long as they live in the property. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize that. You know, they talk about, well, you know, I'll, I'll refinance my mortgage because I'm falling behind in my payments. Well, you refinance, if it's a conventional mortgage, you still have to make the payments. And somebody gets to be 90 years old, fixed income, they may not be able to make those payments and they could lose their house. With a reverse mortgage, you don't lose your house. Absolutely, Mike. Our average client and the average client in the, uh, right now in the Northeast in our area is about 82 years of age. Um, as you just said, most of most people are on fixed income when they retire, and um, also when they lose a spouse. We've got a lot of families where um, you know a, a wife might lose her husband, so she might have lost some social security or some pension income. And you're allowed to refinance the house, like you stated. You're allowed to tap into the equity. And you cannot lose the house. Um, people do sometimes come to us and say that I've heard you can lose the house or I've heard people have lost their home. I really want your public, I want your listeners to understand that you can never go into default on a reverse mortgage because there's no required monthly payments, but you do have to pay your real estate taxes and you do have to maintain homeowner's insurance. So as long as you pay the taxes and the insurance, there's no way that you can get in trouble with a reverse mortgage in my opinion. Some people ask me the question, I don't want to get a reverse mortgage because I heard that if I get a reverse mortgage, when I'm gone, the bank gets the house, not my kids. I hear that with every family I sit down. There are many misconceptions with this program. I think what started that was many, many years ago, um, there were some private banking reverse mortgage products um, that were offered in the United States. And some of those contracts did have provisions, but the title always stays in the borrower's name, just like 
if you took out a home equity line of credit or if you took out a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. And when the borrowers have passed, it will pass through the estate to the children. And someone will have to pay off the loan balance you know, when the borrowers are no longer with us. Um, but you cannot lose the house to a reverse mortgage. How quickly after somebody passes away do you have to pay off the reverse mortgage? I get that question a lot, Mike. In the contract, it says in uh, the heirs, when we help a family with a reverse mortgage, we put alternative contacts in the file. It's usually the children. So upon the last um, passing, the loan becomes due. A letter goes out to the heirs, and within 60 days, they just have to reply to the bank and let the bank know if they're going to either keep the property or if they're going to sell the property. If they're going to keep the property, they have six months to refinance or come up with financing to pay off the balance. If they're going to sell the property, I've seen a maximum of two years, um, which is given in case if it's not a seller's market. You know, I've seen some cases, uh, at least one that I remember, let's say the 90-year-old person passed away and they had a 70-year-old child living in the house and they were able to get a reverse mortgage to refinance the reverse mortgage. Yes, we've had a few of those and we've met a few families like that through your firm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, We've had it where uh, the parents have passed away. If there's an adult child or we had a, um, a situation where an adult child moved into the house after the parents passed. He was like in his 60s. And as long as they qualify for the reverse mortgage and can get enough proceeds to pay off the balance, that's another way to keep the house in the family. Okay, another question that comes up fairly often, if I have a trust, can I get a reverse mortgage? Yes. Um, Our bank, Quantic Bank, allows trust lending. We're a federal chartered bank uh, located here in New York, and we offer trust lending options. A lot of banks um, simply don't know how to review a trust. We do have to review the trust document, and there are certain um, key uh, language that we need in the trust. Um, But we've been doing trust borrowing now for about six years, and I review the trust personally, and most of the trust that we do see get approved. Um, But I just need your listeners to understand that if they do have the house and the trust, um, you know, the reverse mortgage proceeds will go into a trust account that is controlled by the trustees, uh, but they can qualify and we can usually still get the family financing. Why do some banks not give a, a, a loan to a, a trust? Good question. When I first started looking at trusts and we started offering these about six years ago, um, our underwriters were new to looking at trusts. I find the banking industry since um, Historically, uh, banks will not lend to trust. They want to lend to individuals. It's it's really just the familiarity and, and the comfort zone. A lot of underwriters don't know how to review a trust. They don't even know where to start, so they'd rather deny the loan um, than, than look at it further. So that's what we did about seven, eight years ago when we started getting a lot of trusts from a lot of professionals like yourself and a lot of financial advisors. And being a Fed chartered bank, um, sometimes you have a little bit more leeway with what you can offer to a consumer. So sometimes it's really the relationship, like a mortgage broker or some mortgage lenders cannot make that decision. But if you work with a federal bank or a direct lender, um, hopefully more banks will enter this industry because uh, it's a, a market that needs to be served. Uh, but at the present time, we offer trust lending and we review trust daily. What do you mean by a Fed chartered bank? There's many different ways and that uh, banks exist in the country today. There's commercial banks, which are the large banks, which are like the Wells Fargo's, the Bank of America's, the Citibank's. Then there's federal chartered banks. A federal chartered bank means it's located in a particular state, um, but it's controlled or it's regulated um, by the OCC, which is a government agency. So we follow government regulations, but we don't have to follow state mandates. So that means we're uh, able to lend in all 50 states. 
Um, but we are regulated by the federal government. And then there's mortgage bankers, which are basically licensed in the state that they operate. And then there's mortgage brokers, um, which bring, you know, obviously their clients to mortgage banks or lenders. Now, if somebody wants to ask more questions about a reverse mortgage, how do they contact you, Frank? They can reach me directly, Mike, at 888-943-2646. Or they can go to quanticbank.com backslash F Melia. But like I said, the best way to reach me is 888-943-2646. And if somebody has any questions, will you meet them in person? Absolutely. We do this locally, obviously, um, in the New York area, but we do it all around the country. If it's close enough to our location, I will sit down with the family, either at a professional office uh, or a family home or our office. If it's further from our office for the family to commute or us to commute, we'll FedEx, we'll send things via email, uh, but we will meet families locally face-to-face. And we do not charge for the consultation. It's really just to educate, answer their questions, and see if the program's right for them and their family. And if there are any Connors and Sullivan clients out there, you will meet the client at one of our offices. Absolutely. We've been meeting um, families that you've served over the past seven years, and we will meet anyone in the metropolitan area, either at their home or one of your locations. Is there any final message you want to give to people about a reverse mortgage? I'd like to just finish, Mike, by saying that some of the questions that you asked earlier, there's more misconceptions on the reverse mortgage than any other product. It's getting a little bit more attention through the financial planning associations, uh, through some of the uh, bar associations, and through some of the accounting societies. There's a little bit more attention um, on how the product is more of a financial planning tool. They've changed the program over the years. In my opinion, it's become a little safer. The fees have come down, so it's not as expensive as it used to be. And on an ending note, there are are jumbo reverse mortgages that are being offered uh, in select states around the country. And for your listeners to know that there may uh, be a New York jumbo reverse mortgage coming to the market soon, and hopefully we can announce that over the next 30 to 60 days. Jumbo reverse mortgage, what numbers do you think you're talking about? I know it's, it's not New York yet, but... Well, we're going to... We're, we're looking at uh, bringing that uh, product to the market, and we're following the jumbo product that's in the other states. So basically, to help your listeners understand... The number I mentioned earlier, that's the maximum home value that can qualify for an FHA reverse mortgage, which is 726525 So a lot of your listeners, uh, especially in the New York area and some other metropolitan areas around the country, you know, sometimes have a million-dollar home, a $2 million home. So what a jumbo reverse mortgage will do is give them a larger line of credit because now we can give them a percentage of, let's say, $2 million rather than a percentage of 726000 And the jumbo products are not FHA, so there's no mortgage insurance premiums, the closing costs are a little easier, um, and there is a need for this around the country. So we're looking forward to hopefully offering the jumbo mortgage in the New York area pretty soon. Finally, Frank, can you give your contacts again if somebody wants to contact you? Absolutely, Mike. They can go to quanticbank.com backslash F or they can call me directly at 888-943-2646. Thank you, Frank. Your man for reverse mortgages, Frank Milia. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Mike. Have a great day. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? 
These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, on this show, obviously, we, we spend a lot of time talking about the Civil War, and we spend an enormous amount of time talking about Robert E. Lee. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to be talking about the father of Robert E. Lee, and our guest is Ryan Cole. Welcome to Connors Corner. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Ryan, who was the father of Robert E. Lee? His name was Henry Lee III. He was a member of one of Virginia's first families. He was a hero of the American Revolution. He was a statesman in the early years of the Republic. He led the federal forces into western Pennsylvania to subdue the Whiskey Rebellion. He eulogized George Washington as first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. He was one of Washington's protégés. He was a comrade of Alexander Hamilton, a classmate of James Madison and Thomas Jefferson's arch nemesis. So he was a founding father and he was Robert E. Lee's father. All right, let's start with his military career first. How did he get involved in in the Revolutionary War and and in the military? Okay, well, he originally graduated from the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton, and he originally intended to go to England to study the law, but uh, this was 1773-74. This was not the war and revolution intervened and happened, so he chose uh, another path, and that was fighting in the revolution. He'd known George Washington since childhood, and he actually had a dinner at Mount Vernon with George Washington and Charles Lee shortly before Washington departed for Philadelphia, and it fired his imagination. He decided to become a soldier, and he went from doing militia work around Prince William County, was where he was from. Uh, then when Virginia raised cavalry, he was part of that, and then when that was folded into the larger Continental Army, he fought in the Northern Theater with Washington, and then at the end of the war, he was dispatched to join Nathaniel Green in the southern states and the strategy that eventually led to Yorktown and, at the end of the day, American independence. 
Now, we're going to take a small detour right now. You said he met with George Washington and Charles Lee. Who was Charles Lee? Was he any relation? Charles Lee, no, he was no relation, but it's, there are so many Lees, it's confusing. But Charles Lee was a very eccentric soldier of for, fortune from Great Britain who had hopes to be the leader of the American army and was resented George Washington. And it is remembered in history because he preferred the company of dogs to humans. I know a lot of people though right now who prefer the company of dogs to humans. So I don't know. Maybe make That's a comeback. That's one of the more admirable traits. Uh, getting back to Harry Lee, he, he's not a great general. He's more of a cavalry leader. What What are some of his accomplishments during the war? Revolutionary during the war. war. Well, the things that he accomplished, you're not going to be talking about the big battles necessarily that we remember by name, but a lot of it is guerrilla warfare. That's how we would describe it as fighting between the armies, raiding supply uh, trains, securing food or clothing for the American army during the winter at Valley Forge, uh, fighting with Hessians. But the one accomplishment that I can name for you is the the Battle of Pulse Hook. Pulse Hook was a a loyalist-held fort jutting off the coast of New Jersey, and Lee designed a a raid on it, got Washington to sign off, and then executed it without losing a single life. And Congress actually awarded Lee uh, a gold medal for that accomplishment. He was the only soldier below the rank of general during the Revolution to receive that medal. But I should point out, this is very typical of his life. He didn't actually ever get it. He was commissioned, but he was still trying to get it decades later. And why was that? Or just the inefficiency of Congress? Or Inefficiency. It was inefficiency. Jefferson was originally, or Franklin was charged with, with getting the, the coin struck. It didn't work out. Then Jefferson was. They had a model for it. The die broke. Like, and it just never happened. His son was still trying to find it for him years later. And I just thought, you know, I mean, we'll get into this, I think, but his life had a very tragic arc. And this was just an example of how cursed he was in some ways. This this medal is a good metaphor. Revolutionary War, the war in the South, what was it like? It was brutal. It was a civil war. It was a lot of the British had hoped that pockets of loyalists would rise up and help their cause. Uh, so I say in the book that it was a civil war and brother was killing brother and Lee saw this and it actually pushed him away from civil war later when there was during the early years of the Republic when there were revolts against federal policies. Lee, even when he disliked them, always backed off from the idea of disunion because what he'd seen in the South, he was, I would describe him as Nathaniel Green's uh, special weapon in his strategy. He dispatched him and Francis Marion to tear through the interior of the southern states to recapture or disrupt the British communication line in a series of forts. And you really see Lee, where his talent was, he could improvise on the fly, could figure out how to dislodge the British from these installations, just coming up with strategies. In one case, they shot flame-tipped arrows down into one of the forts to chase the British out. In another, they constructed a tower with trees they had felled, climbed up, and raked the British with fire and got them out. So you really see Lee in the South, his talents really come to fruition in terms of being able to plan on the fly and daring and ingenious strategy. How does it lead up to Yorktown, the, the strategy in the South? Well, the Green batters Cornwallis so much that he has to retreat to Yorktown, and he's trapped there and surrenders. And Lee is actually there. This is a really interesting story. Green sends Lee to Yorktown, not in any uh, not as a soldier, but as a messenger, because he wants Washington to concentrate on the remaining British pockets in the south after Yorktown. They still hold Charleston. And he sends Lee. So Lee is there observing 
the surrender at Yorktown, his friends, Hamilton is there, who are actually participating, getting some of the glory. Well, Lee, who was already frustrated at the time about lack of recognition, uh, and he hadn't, he hadn't won sufficient laurels yet in the, in the revolution. And there he is, this climactic moment as a spectator. The war's over. What's, what's next for Harry Lee? He goes home. And Nathaniel Green, in a series of back-and-forth letters, doesn't want Lee to leave. He leaves before, just before the war ends. Lee is tired. He's frustrated. His ego is bruised. He's, Green says to Lee, you'll go home. You'll marry. You'll become a farmer. But you cannot cease to be a soldier. And that turns out to be true. Goes home. He marries his second cousin, Matilda Lee, who is the mistress of Stratford Hall, the Lee ancestral home on Virginia's northern neck. So by marrying her, he becomes the master of Stratford Hall and becomes a, a farmer or a planter. But he can't stay away from politics. He serves in the um, Congress of Confederation, where he's unhappy with uh, its ability to govern the nation. And he ends up part of the Virginia Ratifying Convention after the Constitution is conceived and lobbies along with James Madison in behalf of ratification and helps carry the day in Richmond, which is hugely important because you need buy-in from Virginia, one of the most influential, um, most populous states in the new country. And it's really, you see Lee in his element. He's a really silver-tongued statesman. And he goes back and forth with Patrick Henry, who was you know, one of the grandees of Virginia's political scene, who is against the Constitution. It's, and you see him argue in favor of national unity, saying, I fought with my brothers in the North, and we are one country, and I will always be in matters local of Virginia, but all matters national, I will never forget I'm an American. What was his relationship with George Washington in this time period? He remained close to Washington. He had known Washington since he was a boy, because Washington was an associate of his father, Henry Lee II, and visited their home, Leesylvania. He corresponded with Washington frequently. They discussed politics. They strategized about ratifying the Constitution. They exchanged notes on farming. They exchanged gifts. Um, he fell out politically with Washington for a period because he was opposed to Hamilton's financial policies uh, in the early years of the Washington administration. But he remained close personally to Washington as well as Hamilton uh, throughout the remainder of Washington's life. And Washington thought enough of him that he, as I mentioned earlier, chose him to lead the federal forces into western Pennsylvania to, to put down the first real insurrection against the federal government in 1794. I think it's it's a good lesson to learn. What was the rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion? What was that about? Farmers in the western states, particularly western Pennsylvania, were upset at Hamilton's policy, which had a tax, an excise tax. Now, these farmers, they lived far away from the centers of population. They were living among other farmers, there were excess crops they didn't really have an opportunity to do anything with, so they would convert them into, for example, spirits. And they rebelled against this tax, which they felt was unfair. And they, um, there was an insurrection of sorts. It ended up being really, when the army marched in, there wasn't much more than some raggedly, raggedly closed farmers who were upset. But there were some real demonstrations. They chased out tax collectors. And Washington and Hamilton in particular saw this as a, the first real threat against their government, and they realized that it had to be stamped out. And I think Washington, as, as was his, you know, as always, realized it had to be done gently. And the army going into the to Western Pennsylvania had to treat those who it encountered kindly and charitably. But Hamilton was a little more energetic about it. And it falls on Lee to ultimately march that army into Pittsburgh. Is that the end of his military career? That is the end of his military career. There's talk and commissions 
in the coming years when it looks like the United States may go to war again. By the time of the War of 1812, he is incapable of taking any type of command. His health is so diminished, and his reputation is also in tatters because of bad uh, financial planning. But that draws the curtain on his military career. You started to get into it, bad financial planning. How? Mm -hmm. What happened? Okay, the bad bad financial planning is kind of a modern way of describing it. He Mm -hmm. suffered from an addiction that many of his generation did, and that was you have a new country, and you have a population that's going to move west as roads are built and rivers become passable and canals are constructed. And the thought is you buy this land cheaply at the beginning of this process, and as everything starts moving west onto this land, it it acquires value. And Lee started gobbling it up immediately after he um, leaves the army. And he doesn't have a real head for business. He has more enthusiasm than actual acumen. And he ends up buying land, going into debt, Purchasing, selling, some cases, a great story you asked about George Washington. In one case, he traded George Washington some parcels of land for a stallion, one of Washington's magnificent stallions. And it turns out Lee had already promised that land to someone else. So he had to apologize to Washington. It was embarrassing. But by the time of the uh, the, the 19th century dawns, he's so badly in debt, he basically is in hiding on the run from his creditors or desperately trying to scrounge up the money. Like I said, it wasn't uncommon. You know, Robert Morris, who was the financier of the revolution, suffered the same fate and actually owed Lee money. And Lee believed that if he'd been able to recoup that money, he would have stayed out of debtor's prison, which is where he eventually ends up at the end of all this wild speculation. Debtor's prison. You know, in the 21st century, I don't think we know what that is. What was it? He had a choice. He could de- declare bankruptcy or he could serve time uh, in prison to please all his creditors. And that's what he ended up doing. And the irony of, you know, Robert Morse did the same thing. James Wilson, who was the kind of intellectual uh, leader of the revolution in some ways, suffered the same fate, also owed Lee money. But the upshot of Lee going to debtor's prison was that he found the strength to write his memoirs while he was there, which are still amongst the most colorful and most compelling um, chronicle of the Southern campaign, the American Revolution. Now, obviously, he started a family while this was going on. How many children yeah. did he have? Well, he living, he, he, first of all, I have to get into the wife because there's more than one wife. He married Matilda Lee, who was the, I mentioned her earlier, I believe, who was the yes. heiress to Stratford Hall. She died in 1790. They had, um, they had surviving, they had a son, Philip Ludwell, who was the heir, the oldest son, who dies while Lee is governor of Virginia. Lucy Lee, who lives. Henry Lee IV, who also lives. And there was another child, Nathaniel Green Lee, named after Nathaniel Green, who dies. So then he remarries Ann Carter, who's another uh, member of one of Virginia's foremost families. And they have um, Algernon Sidney, who dies as a child, Charles Carter Lee, and Sidney Smith, then Robert, and the last child is Mildred. So, okay, Robert E. Lee. What was the relationship between Robert E. Lee and his father? There wasn't much of one. And the problem is Robert was born in 1807. This is in the midst of Lee's crisis, financial crisis. So Lee is very rarely at home. In fact, uh, he's not at home when Robert is born. And he's either for the rest of the time that that their lives intersect, Harry is either on the run, in jail, or, and we'll get, I guess we can get to this next, is he spent the last few years of his life in exile in the West Indies. So Robert would have barely known his father and historians for years 
have tried to figure out what impact this absentee father with this disgrace, but also glorious reputation, what impact it had on Robert, his career, and his own personal life. He's in exile in the West Indies. Why? He gets pummeled by a mob in Baltimore, the onset of the War of 1812. He defends a Federalist newspaper editor who is opposed to the war and attacks the Madison administration. So he gets pummeled. His head is described as black and swollen. There's a hole where his eye once was. His nose is split in half and hot candle wax poured in his eyes. He does survive this, but his health is so shot, his finances are still a wreck, and he thinks if he can get to a warmer climate, it might restore his health to some degree. So he asks his old friend James Madison to let him pass through the blockaded Chesapeake Bay. We're at war, remember, with the British. And he makes his way to the West Indies, where he spends the last years of his life wandering. He's destitute. He's reliant on the kindness of strangers or the gullibility of strangers. And he carries a diary with him, which I'll talk about quite a bit in the book where he records his experiences, his feelings, his hopes for his son's observations on modern politics and ancient politics. And he finally, in 1818, decides that he's going to come home. He swindles an old widow to help him pay his debts, and he gets passage on a boat. And as he's passing up around the the coast of Georgia, realizes that he's near Cumberland Island, which is where Nathaniel Green's widow built a home and where their daughter lives. And he decides he wants to disembark and go to the house and die in the home of his old general. And that's exactly what he does in March of 1818. All right. Here we are, you know, 200 years later. Why is is Harry Lee important? Why are you writing about him? He's important for a number of reasons. He's important because his, his contributions during the war on the battlefield, he helped us win our independence militarily. He's important for his role as a statesman in the years after that. He, By helping Virginia ratify the Constitution, he helped give us the form of government we have now. He's important because he eulogized George Washington as first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of countrymen. We still, that phrase is still quoted. We still remember Washington. It's exactly that. He's also important because he, as we talked about, his role in subduing the Whiskey Rebellion. He's important as well because of the, his memoirs about the the Southern campaigns, which are still, I think, in a lot of ways definitive, although you could argue that they, uh, he makes, a, he aggrandizes his own role, perhaps a touch, but that's just keeping up with his personality. He's an important member of the founding generation, and even more than that, the reason I wrote the book, not only because I find that he's relevant and significant and played a part in the formation of our country, but his life amongst that generation is so human and so compelling with so many twists and turns. As I said, Hamilton's life made a beloved musical, but Lee's would make a tragic opera. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that some of the founding fathers didn't, it wasn't always a happy ending. No, no. And you really, you know, we've got, we're at a point now where we don't like heroes. We're not really into heroes. We like tearing them down. But I look at Lee and I really see a human, and I find that compelling. And a man who heroic qualities with with some real flaws commingle, and that's it was very compelling to spend a few years with him, learning about him, and and I hope that people will be as compelled by his story as I was. Okay, the name of the book: Light Horse Harry Lee: The Rise and Fall of a Revolutionary Hero. Ryan Cole, thank you for right. bringing history to life. Thanks, thanks for having me. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, 
Or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia once again call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement frank melia nmls number 62591 all loans provided by quantic bank nmls number 403503 do you have somewhere to sleep did you eat today are you making ends meet for thousands of new yorkers the answer is no for children and youth adults seniors people struggling with addiction or mental illness and for the isolated catholic charities of brooklyn and queens is there with 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing catholic charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation we help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit ccbq.org. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. In 1948, the UN published the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, stating that, quote, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. And it also states, everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Isn't it time for nations to pay attention to these statements when they craft their policies on abortion? This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. We're back again. And our special guest tonight, Mel, one of the attorneys in our office. Hey. Hey, now, Mel, you're not, obviously, you're born in the Philippines, educated in the Philippines. Did you know anything about Harry Lee? Well, before today, no. <laughs> but Ryan, Ryan made a good, good storyteller. Um, I like the fact that he humanized the person. You know, it makes it really realis- realistic, so to speak. So I liked, I'm starting to like the guy. Um, I probably will read this book. Once Very I, good. Once I get a hold of it. Well, you know, one of the things, too, and a lot of our speakers have brought this up because for whatever reason, we've been spending a lot of time on the, on the time between the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. Just I guess that's because what books have been coming out. Mm-hmm. But, but one of the things is how violent politics, the, the art of politics was in the, in the early 19th century going into the Civil War. People would beat each other up for political ideas. And, uh, you know, we really don't think of that. We think of, you know, like polite gentlemen like Henry Clay or... Daniel Webster, or maybe a little bit earlier, John Quincy Adams. But it was a violent world back then, and and people got upset about political ideas. Yes, they did. I think... I think it's unfortunate when you think of Andrew Jackson. We spoke about him before, but... 
he wasn't the only one that maybe had a quick temper. I mean, he's he's noted for lashing out at people, maybe. No, he's not the only one. I mean, Hamilton was killed for crying out loud. Burr got away. Andrew, he, he, he becomes governor of New York. So, I mean, people were, it was a hard, it was a hard world. They had, um, Andrew Jackson had spent his childhood with the British killing his family. Um, Lee, I think he, they, I know he called him a scoundrel, but I mean, he was, he was a visionary but just caught at the wrong time because what two people that also were a debtor's prison were people that owed him money. Yeah. I mean, how many people panic? They think they've got a, Oh, this is great. It's a wonderful investment. Okay, let's do this. So they do that. Everything falls apart. You know, the great depression, people were drop, jumping out windows. I mean, I did not know the part about him in Boston getting beaten. Beaten Baltimore. up, Baltimore. Thank that you. Was, that, was scary. that was wild. I knew nothing about that. Nothing about that. So he's he's lost an eye. Yeah. Holy smoke! He ends up running. Oh, yeah. I, this is this is, and he's not the only one that things like this happen to. That's the whole point. It it wasn't easy in the. My grandmother used to tell me, "Oh, honey, you don't want to go back to the old timey days." No. And, you know, after the interview, we learned that uh, Ryan Cole's going to do a book about Lou Wallace, who's one of our personal heroes. We, oh, wow. oh, Ben-Hur. All right. The horse, the chariot race. Right, when we have Heston behind the, and what was his, when he was afraid he was going to lose the chariot race? Well, no, that was it. Yeah, the, the, the chief stuntman, second unit director, Yakima Kunut, who was the, the guy who got shot 15 times in, in stagecoach <laughs> falling off horses, just say, stay on the damn chariot. I guarantee you, you're going to win the race. <laughs> you know, so. But I mean, Lou Wallace, I mean, this is uh, this is great. Yeah. I mean, did- we spent a lot of time talking about Lou, Lou Wallace uh, a while back. And, you know, he was a, a Civil War hero. He saved Washington from Jubal Early's army in in the spring of 1864. So 2,000 men, he held, held off 25,000 seasoned Confederates. And it, it's one of the great stories of the war. Maybe we'll we'll replay that with Ralph Peters whenever when we talked about Lou Wallace. Well, let's hope he finishes that book. That'll right. be good. We'll see how close Lou Wallace was to Jason Robarts and <laughs> Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. <laughs> You know, now we're you know we're already past the the first month in the year. And by the way, those of you who have New Year's resolutions, hey, it's time for me to do a will. You know, you got to give us a call at Connors and Sullivan at seven one eight two three eight sixty five hundred seven one eight two three eight sixty five hundred. Everybody should have a will. If you own real estate, maybe you want to think about a trust. But if you want to come in and talk to us about estate planning, and elder law, please feel free to do so. Now, again, we're almost through the first month of the year, which next month is February. February is Black History Month, and we're going to have a couple of our old friends back through the month. We're going to have Burgess Owens on, who, you know, is a pretty good historian, used to play safety in the NFL. I'm sure he's going to talk about Colin Kaepernick a little bit. (laughs) It's still... He delves into politics, too, right. so that'll you be know, fun. Yeah, and Alveda King is coming back, and we're going to talk about her uncle, you know, Martin Luther King, and, and some of his accomplishments Perfect. toward American history. So, And we're going to be talking about a, a local Brooklyn woman who was a medical doctor, African-American, who educated herself after the Civil War, and we're going to be talking with a local historian on that one. So 
we've got a full season for Black History Month, and then I guess we get to March, we're going to talk a little bit about Irish history, Uh-oh. and we're going to be mm. we'll be talking to. <laughs> it's hard to out. find. It's hard, yeah. hard well, to find good Irish people. We're going to talk a little bit about <laughs> Irish history or something like that during the the month of March. And everybody, please don't forget that we have some new times here. Maybe now five seventy is the same. That Saturday morning at eight a.m. Um, Nine seventy though, there's some changes. Nine seventy now, eleven a.m. on Sundays, and we're still six to seven on nine seventy Saturdays. But the nice thing is, if there's sports or something on Saturday and you miss us, eleven a.m. Sunday morning. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. But again, don't forget what we do. We do estate planning and elder law. If you want to learn more about estate planning and elder law, give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. If you have any questions about real estate, you can give Mel a call, right? Yes, he definitely he, You're going to be nice to him, aren't you? He knows his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> give us a call, right. 718-238-6500. Okay, and you're in the Brooklyn office mostly. I mostly am in the Brooklyn office, but That's I can also good. go anywhere. Mr. Connors, thanks for having me here. And I look forward to joining you again in future Absolutely. shows. Absolutely. Thank you so okay. much. Thank you for joining us. Same time next week. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered, we are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.